Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we've got a show lined up that really touches on a subject that I know resonates throughout Indian country. It seems like no matter who I speak with, whether it's a First Nations person up in Canada, whether it's a Native Alaskan, whether it's people in the lower 48 on a reservation or in an urban area, people that are close to the land, close to their tribal heritage, are talking about the environment. Things are not the same as they used to be. What does it all mean? What can we do differently? To probe some of those questions, I've got an amazing guest. His name is Scott Christensen. Scott is the author of a book called Planet in Distress. Scott, I am so glad you could be with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Now, Scott, you've got a fascinating story, and it really ties in with Indian country because... As you and I have talked uh, prior to even envisioning, I think, a radio show, or maybe it was in the context of talking about the possibility of a show, you were sharing with me some real uh, close connections you had with Indian country in the past that really alerted you, uh, I think, maybe for the first time even, about what was happening on this planet. Is that true? Uh, Maybe not for the first time about what's happening on the planet, though at the time I was just beginning to learn. But it really made things, how can I say, less abstract. It made it real for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the time, I was living and working in a place called Crown Point, New Mexico, or at least near Crown Point, New Mexico, um, the Lake Valley area. And this is a place that's on the Checkerboard Reservation in New Mexico. I mean, it's out there. Mm-hmm. It's 60 miles to the nearest post office, to give you a, a, a feel. It, it, it's it's quite removed from everyday traffic. And it was my privilege to live and work among the Navajo for two years. Mm-hmm. An amazing experience. So you're there in New Mexico. Your roots, I mean, the name Christensen doesn't sound like a Native American name. No. So the roots are in Scandinavia? Scandinavia, yep. No, I was a Belagana working uh, among these people, and I had moved there from California. It was an amazing experience to go from Southern California to the mesas of New Mexico. But what was most fascinating were the people themselves. I mean, when you really got to know them a little bit, spent time with them, uh, invested in a relationship uh, with them, I managed to get into absolutely fascinating conversations. And one of the things that I found most riveting was talking to the Navajo about their ancestors and how it used to be. And just so you understand, I mean, we're talking about the Badlands. We're talking about really scarce water. We're talking about only a few shrubs that grow. I mean, the the cattle are, are very sparse on the land because there's nothing to eat. We're talking about an environment that's alternately very cold and very hot and always very dry. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking to these Navajo, and they're telling me about the peach trees their grandfathers had hmm. and the gardens that their grandmothers had. 
you know. So we're talking we're talking living memory. I mean, they they saw these things when they were. You, you talk to a very old person, and they saw these things when they were very young. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking around, and how could this be? You know, the water's not there. This is terrible soil. This is too hot. This is too cold. This is way too dry. How could this be? And they told me, no, look, things have changed. Things have really, really changed for us here on the reservation in the course of just a few generations. Mm -hmm. And that brought it down to a human timeline for me. And that was, I think, revolutionary, maybe revelationary in my thinking. So here's a guy, grew up in Southern California. Yeah. And, you know, you're in an urban environment. Yep. Now you come into a more rural setting. You're dealing with indigenous peoples, First Nation peoples, and they're they're sharing their oral tradition with you. Yes. And you're saying, you know, all this stuff maybe that you've been hearing in the news, uh, it's taking on a totally different perspective. Absolutely correct. And, you know, the result of the degradation in this local environment, uh, local climate, was profound in terms of its impact on the families. They mm. could not produce their own food, full stop. I mean, they could have a couple a couple sheep maybe. Uh, if they were very well off, a couple cows that, that were grazing. Um, but even that was incredibly difficult to have mm. because of the amount of land required for a cow or a sheep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the impact was tremendous, and I'm looking at its knock-on effects in human society. And I think that was the point where the penny dropped for me. There's changes in the world on a meta scale, and they are eroding the underpinnings of human society. Hmm. Now, you didn't just have opportunity to rub shoulders with indigenous peoples in the Navajo Nation. You also, was it after that that you began work in Asia as well? In Mongolia, uh, first Mongolia and later China. Yes, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, it was um, was very, very fortunate that I lived and worked among the Navajo for a couple of years because after that, the next stop was Mongolia. Mm-hmm. Mongolia, the coldest capital city in the world. You know, we would regularly see minus 40 during the winter. And I, I was a young man coming out of Southern California, so the first time I saw zero was on the Navajo Reservation mm-hmm. in New Mexico. And if I had gone straight from California to Mongolia, I think I would have come screaming back. <laughs> it would have been too much. But beyond that, you know, Mongolia is thought to be the origin of Athabasque people. If you take a Stetson and put it on a Mongolian, you have a Navajo. The, the 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 facial types the, the the features are depending on which Mongolian tribe are very similar. So, but so also are habits. So also to some degree is the culture. Hmm. It was. I don't want to overgeneralize. I mean, they're they're very different too, of course. But but for me, my time in uh, New Mexico was an acclimation for my fascinating time in Mongolia. And what I saw in Mongolia really helped to seat this idea um, that that the changes we're seeing in our world, especially on a meta scale, 
affect human society. Uh, it's an, it's necessary to know that with Mongolians, um, there's only one cap, there's only one city really in the entire country, especially at that time, and they are dispersed and they're semi-nomadic. Okay. So they'll have one place for the winter, one place for the summer. They live entirely off of their animals. They'll have sheep, goats, yak, camel, horses, and they they milk these animals. Uh, they eat the meat. They use the the fiber. Uh, they, they make rope out of horse tails. They use the entire animal. They burn camel dung hmm. and and cow dung to keep warm in the winter. So. They've got this incredibly close relationship with their animals. But in Mongolia, like New Mexico, the grass is very sparse, so they need a large area. Mm-hmm. So what you'll find out is that you'll, you'll have one Mongolian family living in their round tents. They're called a ger. And the Russians call them a yurt, but the Mongolians don't like that word. They call them a ger. And then their next-door neighbor is 12 to 15 miles away. Wow. And they don't get closer than that because the animals need that space. Mm-hmm. If the neighbors come with their animals and get closer than that, especially when you have historic family air, camping areas, mm-hmm. the neighbors get closer than that, that's cause for a fight. Huh. That's a big deal. They're actually threatening each other's livelihood. Mm-hmm. Well, while I was in Mongolia, and I arrived there in... Uh, 1994. So this is a long time ago. But when I got to Mongolia, one of the things happening in the country was that the Gobi Desert was marching north at about 20 kilometers a year. 20 kilometers a year? 20, it, was, it was racing north. Uh-huh. So you have massive desertification where once there was grass, now there's sand. And what's happening is these families are being pushed. Uh being pushed north, and they are encroaching on their neighbors. This is when suddenly the gares burst into flame in the middle of the night. This is when a truck or a jeep runs through a gare in the middle of the night, killing the occupants. This is when fist fights, uh, a fist fight is relatively mild, you know, compared to Uh a truck running through Uh the gare. I mean, we're talking significant violence because the livelihood and lives of families are threatened. People are pushed closer and closer together, and all of a sudden they're not viable. Hmm. In addition to that, we had suddenly snow appearing in the country. Now, you you might say, well, a big deal, so you've got snow. I mean, it's a cold country. But Mongolia is a very dry country, and these animals live over the winter by nibbling the small amounts of brown grass that exists, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not much, and they're in poor shape by the end of the winter. But if snow comes, it is actually a national catastrophe because the the sheep, you know, they'll try and paw away the snow, but they may or may not find a little bit of grass. Mm -hmm. They are expending more energy looking for food than they're getting back. Wow. And these nomads, who have very few possessions in the first place because they have to carry around what they own... These nomads would get to the point when there was no more animal dung to burn. They would burn their little bit of furniture. And then what have they got? They don't have animals to eat. They don't have fuel to burn. Mm. Their lives have been destroyed. While I was there, 
there was uh, a string of snowstorms over the years which absolutely had not happened in the more than 1,000 years of written history of that country. Uh-huh. I, mean, it, I mean, this is new. It's not just, uh-huh. you know, a phase. This is new. And so we had refugees coming into the capital city, family after family after family coming in with nothing and hopeless, and the crime rate rates absolutely soared in that mm-hmm. one city, that one capital city. Uh, the uh, street children problem exploded. Prostitution, disease, uh, substance abuse, the products of desperation. And I was able to see the complete chain, rapid decay in the environment, chipping away at the foundations of human society. So basically, you're telling us a story, Scott, of how your contact with indigenous peoples, whether they were here in North America or whether they were in Mongolia, and their oral histories are basically opening your eyes to the fact that it's not just a bunch of hype that this earth is changing. I mean, this is real. People that have lived close to the land for centuries are telling their stories. You're seeing it play out in front of your eyes. What did that do to you personally? Oh, it it changed the way I looked at the world. And I would ask them as well, you know, how was it for your grandparents? I would try and probe into the oral history. They told me fascinating stories about the changes that they had undergone and how it was affecting them. And I would also ask them, why is this happening? And I would get varying answers, you know, uh, but most of them had to deal with the relationship between man and earth, the relationship between man and creator, is completely messed up. Hmm. They had a spiritual aspect to their analysis, which I found to be absolutely fascinating. And that opened my eyes as well. So the entire experience was, I think I can say, transformational. We're talking with Scott Christensen. He's the author of the book Planet in Distress. He shared with us how basically Native Americans and other indigenous peoples have opened his eyes, as has happened to many individuals, about what is happening on this planet. He's got more amazing insights into what is happening on planet Earth and some amazing insights into what you and I can do in light of the challenges that we're facing. Scott Christensen will be back with us for our next segment of American Indian Living. I'm staying by. You do the same. We will be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Don't go away. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical. 
medical unit. Respond to 102 Maple Avenue. Possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose and with Scott Christensen. Scott has been sharing with us uh, some amazing experiences. He uh, worked in Navajo country for some years. Then uh, you were actually heading up or in a leadership role in a non-governmental organization in Mongolia, right? Right, right. Uh, Country director uh, for an international NGO in Mongolia. Yes. And then from Mongolia, do I understand it right, then you went from there to China in a similar role? Yes, right next door uh, to China, but with a country of almost 1,000 times as many people. Wow. So you learn things from indigenous peoples in North America dealing with the Navajo. You learn things about the environment and what was happening in the world dealing with Mongolians who you shared with us, uh, many anthropologists believe, have some common roots genetically and and familially with uh, First Nation peoples in the Americas. What about China? Were you mainly working in urban areas, rural? Were you dealing with the whole range of of demographics in China? Well, that's an interesting question because every year there's less and less and less rural area in China. Hmm. Um, You know, it was... Absolutely fascinating to be in China in the late 90s, and I've visited the country many times since. An absolutely fascinating country, Um, and they were industrializing and modernizing as rapidly as possible. And what I saw in terms of the interactions with the environment of that nation and also the impact of that nation on the accelerating decline of our environmental systems, our, nat- our, our global systems, if you will, our earth systems. What I saw was absolutely fascinating. Well, I'll, t- I'll give you one example. Please, shall please. I? Okay. So, of course, being an NGO in China, you're very, very closely linked to the government. They're, they work, you work hand-in-hand hand with them 
whether you like it or not. <laughs> and one day I was approached, after being there for, for a few months, I was approached by a government director, a fairly high-level guy, and he said, look, we want you to go to a certain part of China, central China, and we want you to talk to the farmers there. You know, They need some help with some water. They're having a hard time with water. And, uh, well, it was, it was at a minimum, it was my obligation to go and look and see. Mm-hmm. Well, what he was talking about was a f- very large farmer's cooper- cooperative. And so we're talking a lot of farmers. We're talking about a very large area. And I sit down with these guys and I say, well, you know, tell me, tell me what, what's up. And they said, well, we're running out of water and we need your help buying large pumps. And I said, well, you know, my organization is mostly about community development. Uh, We don't really do, you know, work with cooperatives much. We work more on village scale, small town scale, blah, blah, blah. And I said, but tell me, you know, I'm here. Mm -hmm. Tell me me what the situation is. And so they said, well, it used to be that we, we watered our crops with the rain or we had some some shallow wells but we really started producing a lot of crop we really started really uh being very productive when we drilled wells a number of years ago and put down pumps and you know we were very proud of these wells we went down some 30 meters about 100 feet mm-hmm. and we put pumps in and then we irrigated our crops and that was great mm-hmm. And I said, okay. And they said, well, we did this all over the area. We had all these wells, but after a while, the wells went dry. Hmm. So we dug deeper wells. You know, we went down a uh, hundred meters. We went down three hundred and thirty feet, so give or take. And so we were in business again. Well, on and on and on, this wow. happened until they're down at about fifteen hundred feet. And they wanted pumps the size of railroad engines to get the water up and mm. keep it going. And the water that they were getting was very poor in quality. And I said, look, you know, obviously there's an end point. Obviously you can't keep doing this forever. And where you are, you're not going to get water in from the outside. What's your plan? And they said, well, when the government can't get us any water, we'll just go to the city and work. We'll have a construction job or something like that. I said, well, all this farmland, all the people who need this food, you know, I mean, there's uh, there's so many people in China, there's so much need for food, and there's a this is a significant amount of farmland that goes out of production. And they said, yeah, right. What are we going to do? There's another story, just to just to try and give you a, a fuller picture of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The the stress of food in China is is uh, there's this great push to produce as much food as possible because there's so much demand. One of the things that really drives down production in China is the fact that the air is so bad everywhere. We've heard a little bit about astonishing levels of pollution in Beijing, and I had an office in Beijing and an office in Hong Kong. I would go back and forth between the two. I'd always be miserable when I went to Beijing because you couldn't see more than a block or two. Your eyes were red and watering. Wow. Your lungs hurt so much. Uh, it was terrible. The sunlight just doesn't reach the plants. But even though the news talks about Beijing, 
the pollution is nationwide because the dirty industry is nationwide. And so you've got plants that are exposed to horrible, horrible air. The rain, when it comes, goes through the air, and you've got all of these chemicals, and you're getting acidic rain, and Mm -hmm. it's really affecting the plants. But you also have industry. They have, uh, especially at the time, they're trying to clean up their act, but they had very, very, very dirty industry at the time. There was no waterway, no stream, no river that was not some unnatural color, whether it was red, whether it was green, whether it was blue, whether it was brown and foamy. There was no natural surface water that I ever saw. No, Certainly no usable surface water that I ever saw in all of my travels in China. Really? It was astonishing. The need to have farmland that was viable was at, a, at an absolute prime. I went to one small town, and I talked to the director of the, the town, and he told me that he'd like to have the help of my organization in moving the town. Hmm. And I said, now, now, just a moment, explain this to me. What, you want to move the? Yes, we want to move all of these buildings. You know, if we have to rebuild them, that's okay, but we want to move all of these buildings. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, over here, about a kilometer away, about a half mile away, we used to have a brick factory. And that brick factory scraped the topsoil off of a large area, and then it burned the brick, and the coal ash went back where there was formerly dirt. So we have this large area where absolutely nothing can grow. Hmm. The The topsoil's gone, and the coal ash is now there. So it, there's nothing that can be done. But we have to produce enough food for our people, so we're going to move the village buildings, we're going to move the town buildings to the bad dirt, and we will farm where these buildings are now. Mm. That's extraordinary. Uh-huh. You know, there, there aren't other places in the world who are looking at the stress of their environment and looking at the cost of using land the way China is now. So in China, we get a little glimpse of our future. We get a glimpse of what happens when you get an astonishing number of people on a limited amount of land, and what happens when we engage in human activities, industrial activities, and crowd out, or actually, I shouldn't say crowd out, destroy and degrade the very things that support our human society. Uh, It is really like we're choking on our own pollution, and we can see that in China. China now being one of the most active purchasers of farmland all over the rest of the world, okay. especially in Africa. So what we're getting is a glimpse of the future, and I don't mean a necessarily a distant future in terms of pressure on, on human society. You're making a powerful case, Scott, that this planet is in distress. In fact, Planet in Distress is the title of your book. It's been out for a while. I've heard of people speaking of it. I've got a copy of it right in front of me right now. And we have got to talk about the implications of this because we're not just talking China. We've got to bring this back to the United States, Indian country, and beyond. How is this problem of a deteriorating Earth impacting 
people who may think that they're doing a pretty good job. Well, let's let's have that discussion, but let's frame it properly. Because the truth of the matter is, it's not just that we're seeing a little change in climate. It's a little warmer here. It's a little cooler there. It's a little windier there. What we're seeing is changes on a meta scale. We're seeing changes substantial, and I mean truly frightening changes, to our atmospheric system, climate system, food production system, oceanic system, freshwater system. It's absolutely frightening. Wow. Well, this is not a show that's designed just to scare you, but Scott Christensen is going to be sharing in our next segment some amazing data that should have us all on alert if we're not already that way. But he's not going to just leave us there. He's going to talk with us about some of the implications of living on a planet that is in distress. We've got more coming up in today's edition of American Indian Living. Scott Christensen, author of Planet in Distress. I'm Dr. David DeRose, your host. We will be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. Don't go away. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke. Sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood... Or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute, since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose and Scott Christensen for our second half of today's edition of American Indian Living. 
We've been going with Scott as he's worked in environments as diverse as Navajo country to Mongolia to China, and he's had a front row seat as he's been looking at climate change, but not just changes in weather patterns, not just changes in climate per se, but changes in the earth. Scott, you're not the only one who's been noting these things. It's not only indigenous people who are seeing the world changing, but there are some very prestigious players that are looking at our planet, and they're getting very worried. Tell us a little bit about uh, what really is happening. Well, you know, the, the world of science is absolutely fixated on the changes to the Earth. Um there are there are studies that come out every week, and they aren't, generally speaking, optimistic studies. Uh, you know, the more we understand what's going on on the Earth, the more worried we get. Hmm. And the it, it's always a matter of it's worse than we thought it was. And when every month brings that same statement after a you know, after a number of years, it you understand it's it's critical. But what we're seeing, and just to be clear, what we're seeing are changes on vast scales, metascales. We're seeing a change in ocean currents. Mm. And, and, you know, why is that important? Because, you know, water flows around and so what? Well, the oceans are also thermal distributors. They balance out heat. They take water from... Uh, the Caribbean and water from the central latitudes, from the equatorial zones. And the water is distributed closer to the poles. Really, England and the Nordic states, my, my, the country where my ancestors came from, would be extremely difficult to live in if it wasn't for this very warm current that comes up off the coast of North America and, and, uh, and terminates in that area, bringing them a lot of warmth. So... When we're talking about changes in ocean currents, you're talking about changes in thermal distribution. You're talking about suddenly, uh, as these currents slow down and back up, you're talking about ridiculously hot water hmm. in the equatorial zones. And that means much larger and much more frequent storms. Because okay. this is what, this is, this heat is what drives typhoons, this heat is what drives, hurricanes call them, cyclones call them what you will. Same thing. So, in addition to that, we're seeing changes in our atmosphere. We're seeing our jet stream slow down and beginning to meander, and that means that storms uh, are driven to places they weren't steered to places, if you will, that they weren't steered to before. Mm -hmm. We're talking, and and we're talking about droughts in places where storms used to steer be steered to. We cannot, with sufficient rapidity change where we farm and try and catch up with a meandering jet stream. This, whole, this same jet stream that is, that is steering storms, when it slows down, that means that the weather that we used to get for two or three days, we're now getting for much longer. So the heat mm -hmm. waves last longer. The storms last longer. The wind lasts longer. All of that is really bad in terms of its impact on human society. What we're seeing is an earth that we no longer really understand how it's operating and where it's going. What we do know is that it is accelerating in its decay 
And this is a tremendously, extraordinarily serious problem and one that we, we don't know what to do about uh, on, a, on a meta scale. Well, let's bring it back to indigenous peoples. Okay. Many of them, at least those who are living co- uh, close to coastal areas, are concerned about what's happening in uh, what you refer to as the oceanic systems. We've talked some about the the currents and things of that nature, but how does this all impact uh, subsistence tribes and other communities that uh, are largely dependent on fish populations? Well, that's a really good question. Let me preface it by by going back to what I was talking about in terms of the meta systems, because it's in answering this question, it's important that we understand that the Earth's systems do not operate in isolation. Mm-hmm. So what happens in the atmosphere it impacts the oceanic system. What happens in the oceanic system impacts our uh, soil system, our food production system, which in turn impacts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So where we see a decline in one system, we can be confident that there are declines in all systems that are just not as obvious. Now, when we take a look at the oceanic system, uh, again, we can't look at it in isolation, but what we're already seeing is increases in sea levels. We know that uh, our caps are melting in the Arctic, our ice caps. Certainly, we're seeing phenomenal melt uh, in Greenland. Sea levels are rising millimeters at a time, which is not a big deal. But the there is a tremendous acceleration of the rate of rise. And we expect to see, uh, there have been a number of studies on this, and each one is more striking than the last because they keep raising the number. We expect to see perhaps a meter, three feet, of sea level rise uh, in the next 50 years. Now, I expect to see that actually much sooner than 50 years mm. simply because of the rate of acceleration, the the rate of doubling in, in the rise of the uh, sea level or the rate of sea level rise. Now, a meter may not seem like much, but that profoundly impacts Florida, low-lying Florida. Mm-hmm. That makes Miami, uh, parts of Miami, uh, just unusable. Wow. That means that we're seeing a whole lot more erosion in some coasts. And when you get into Alaska and you get into the fact that there's much less sea ice than there used to be and that it's it's coming later and it's melting earlier and it's weaker and thinner than it used to be, and then you talk about rising seas, because there's less sea ice and because we're having stronger storms, that means we're getting tremendous erosion of coastlines mm-hmm. in Alaska that are encroaching on the uh, First Nation settlements that are there. Okay. Just, uh, um, I mean, these are these are very human impacts that we're seeing, and we're seeing them all around the world, and we're seeing the again, and I can't overstress this: the foundations of human society are being chipped away. By what's going on. Now, you've been researching this a lot, obviously, Scott. It's not just your own personal experiences. You've been in leadership roles in various parts of the world. We talk a lot about health issues on American Indian living, and much of what you said, you know, we're talking about things that are going to impact and already are impacting life and health. But how about some of the more 
conventional health discussions that we have about insect-borne illnesses, about uh, malnutrition, about infectious diseases in general. Has your research disclosed any concerns about those topics? Oh, absolutely. I, uh, what a what a moving topic this is. Uh, uh, in addition to being just a relevant one, because there is there's what's going on right now, but there's also what is expected to happen given the trends that we are on as a globe. When the Earth grows. Uh, drier. Mm -hmm. When there is a drought, there's also a tremendous amount of sickness that goes with it. Mm. Um, you know, part of that may be that our our if people are taking in less water, uh, then the immune system is compromised. But there's also the fact that uh, you know heat stresses the body. But there's also the fact that there's a lot more dust in the air. Hmm. wind-driven dust and it, we're actually not supposed to breathe dirt you know it's it's we're not supposed to do that and there are all sorts of pathogens in dirt that make us sick in the dust bowl era in the united states back in the 1930s this is largely forgotten now it's it's pretty much out of living memory but there would be these massive dust storms and then there would be a whole series of unexplained illnesses that struck the young and the old, and there would be significant deaths following those dust storms. There was, uh, you know, we, were, we were seeing this. We're beginning to see uh, desertification. In some cases, we've been seeing it for many years. And where we see dust storms around the world, we see pathogens, we see diseases. So here's just one little example. But when there isn't enough water, we see spikes in illness. When there's not enough proper food, we see spikes in illness. When there are a, a change in disease vectors, and you'd be the best one to explain mm. what a vector is, certainly better than me, but when, when there is a warming and mosquitoes come in that were not there before that carry certain kinds of diseases, or pests, other pests come in that carry diseases, then you have entire populations that are exposed to things through these vectors, that they were not previously exposed to. We're seeing that right now. These are tremendous impacts. No, I mean, you're exactly right. So a vector is anything that basically carries a disease. So, you know, the vector for Lyme disease would be the, the tick in that example. But as you mentioned, there are many mosquito-borne illnesses, illnesses that are transmitted by mosquitoes. And you're right. When we start changing the climate and increase the survivability of mosquitoes of different types, Different diseases can be spread. So, yeah, all of these uh, things are clearly interrelated. And as you've been looking at this, I mean, I'm just going to ask you a question because, I don't know, I think a lot of people think this is just pretty depressing stuff. Yeah. Aren't we better off if we just ignore it? <laughs> well, if your house is on fire, do you ignore it? Hmm. I mean, uh, I don't think we can. I don't think we can ignore it. So what what can we do? What, what what practical things can we do at this point that can make a difference with a, a process that, in many people's minds, seems to be out of control? And I, I I think as scientists continue to study this, as we get more and more and more information, we're going to find out the extent of the problem. But we should not wait until 
we know the problem in its fullness before taking action. Mm-hmm. I think, and and this is part of my own personal philosophy as well, I think we need to have, as a human society with more than 7 billion members, I think we need to have a do-no-harm attitude. Hmm. And this is especially relevant in North America, where we consume so much. You know, the water that we're consuming, the food that we're consuming, by the way, takes enormous amounts of water to produce, and we need to be paying attention to that. Are there certain foods more than others that are claiming those uh, those water uh, needs? Uh, grains, especially, <laughs> especially the grains that we feed to animals. Hmm. A vegetarian diet is much, much, much less water-intense than a primarily meat-based diet would be one example. So basically shifting to more of those indigenous eating patterns that are closer to the earth. Absolutely. Scott, I know you've got a lot more to share. Fortunately, we've got one more segment. Important messages. We're talking about a scary subject, but uh, clearly, clearly the solution is not to bury our heads in the sand. Scott has got some other practical insights. In fact, uh, you might say life-changing insights that we'll be addressing in our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose, Scott Christensen, author of Planet in Distress. He will be back with us for our final segment. Stay tuned for more. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand, and someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back for our final segment of American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose with me, Scott Christensen. He's the author of Planet in Distress. Scott, uh, we've been talking about your book a lot. It's a relatively easy read from my vantage point. Uh, It's not a a huge volume, but has got a lot in a relatively succinct package. How does someone pick up a copy? Oh, it's readily available uh, on Amazon and other uh, online booksellers and at a number of bookstores. It's pretty easy to find. Okay, Planted in Distress, Scott Christensen. Scott, we've been speaking about the impact of all kinds of stuff happening in our world. Make that relevant, especially for us in North America. Well, okay. So, okay, there's one example I can point to. Um, You know, we talked a little bit about what we can do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, And again, going back to the do no harm in terms of how we live. What are we taking away from vulnerable vulnerable people someplace else on the earth. Along those same lines of thinking is the fact that knowledge is power. Okay. What's what's coming? What can I reasonably expect? Or at least, what is the fullest fullest extent of what science knows now? Well, that's usually difficult to to gather and to understand. But uh, but let me give you one example. Mm-hmm. The National Center for Atmospheric Research part of the U.S. government, did a study where they modeled the changes to our atmosphere, uh, the changes uh, that, were, that we're seeing uh, in a number of systems, Earth systems, and they came up with a map of the United States that shows where drought, where water stress is expected over the coming decades. They, they, they put these maps out uh, uh, decade by decade for a number of years. You can find them online. And taking a look at the western United States, and especially taking a look at central United States, our grain-producing regions, these are striking maps. Hmm. You know, what should we expect? When should we expect it? Well, science, our, our understanding of what's going on is very much a moving target. These maps may not be, you know, fully accurate. Mm-hmm. But they give us an idea now of what's happening and how serious it is. And this is one thing we can do is gather more information and understand the situation that we're in. So all of us, it behooves us to really be educated about what's happening. We want to try to make as little an impact as we can. Absolutely. We want to basically, instead of avoiding the issue, we want to engage with it. Is... Do you think there's a danger, Scott, that some of us are making it too simple, that we're thinking it's, uh, you know, just some simple lifestyle changes? Or do those lifestyle changes, they're being talked about whether it's what we eat or what kind of a car we drive or how much we drive a vehicle, are these things really important in the big picture? Well, there's 7 billion of us. That is a big, big number. Mm. And yes, we need to make small changes in our lifestyles. Uh, Here in North America in particular, we need to make large changes in our consumption of resources, uh, our consumption of carbon, certainly our production of carbon. We we need to make large changes. And when you multiply that by 
hundreds of millions and by billions, it makes a big, very big difference. So we are here at a point in time where there are grim projections. You have seen in your own experience, and my indigenous listeners have told me, we've had people on the show from various tribal backgrounds who said, we're being impacted, whether it's Native Alaskans that I've had on the show, talking about uh, just what you alluded to, how the ice pack is changing, how their traditional uh, hunting and fishing practices have changed as a result of that. Whether it was your experience in Navajo country, where the ground is not uh, bearing fruit like it was in the past. So we're talking about all these things, and at the same time, we're trying to give messages. You're trying to give messages in your book, but how, how do you deal with this personally? I mean, you're living through this. You're dealing with it. You're writing about it. I mean, you've got to have some personal take on where this is all going and, and why it's significant. Well, I, I, yes, on two levels. Let me, let me go first to, not to the politicians. They're, they're largely useless. Um, but let me go to governments as opposed to politicians. I look at the way governments are taking this very seriously. And I mean, in the United States, that's the military, that's threat analysis, that's very intelligent people who have the ability to take data and to look forward and to see impacts. And I look at what they are projecting is coming and the changes that they suggest we make. Um, and, and, you know, they say, well, we're going to see more conflict in human society. We're going to see more disease. We are seeing more conflict. We are seeing more disease, but we're going to see exponential increases in all of these. I look at all of that and, hey, these guys are on the ball. This is good. We've got, we've got people really paying attention if we can only change. But then there's a whole different level, which is my personal perspective. I mean, I, I'm a Christian. I come at this from a Christian perspective. And when I talked with Native Americans, they opened my eyes to the fact that they saw a spiritual connection in what was going on with the earth. And I, I looked, I took that and I put it into my own perspective, a Christian perspective. And then I opened scripture and I compared what scripture says is coming on the earth with what I see coming on the earth, and there are incredible parallels. Uh, you know, for me, reading what Christ said was coming on the earth in Matthew 24, and then comparing that with what we're seeing now was a striking and um, revelationary experience, because I said to myself, okay, look, I'm seeing prophecy fulfilled. Hmm. That is a big deal. That's a very big deal. So basically, this has become not just a personal quest to try to educate people, but you're also saying there are spiritual implications. And for those of us like myself, who at one point in my life, I, I considered myself an agnostic, you're saying that the planet in distress should cause us not only to look at our lifestyle and how it's impacting our planet, but it should also cause us to be more spiritually aware. You saw that happening with the Navajo people, and you're saying that should happen to all of us. Yes, what we're seeing has, in, in, from my perspective, in my opinion, and I cover this some in my book, has deep spiritual implications. And just as you can't separate 
the Earth's systems. You can't separate how the ocean functions from how the atmosphere functions. You also can't separate how they function from their creator and from our life on this planet. That's my perspective anyway. So, Scott, as you write about it, as you speak about it, I know you've given lectures on these topics in addition to to writing the book. What kind of feedback are you getting from people who engage with you, whether it's in person or through your book? The feedback I get is that, well, you know, scientists are, are wonderful. They're good to have. They're not necessarily really good communicators hmm. because there's not a lot of work going on that ties all this together. And when you paint the full picture instead of just a couple dots on the canvas, people say, okay, wow, I'm, I'm getting this. All of these things are linked together. Um, I think when people understand that all these are linked together, then the changes they make in their life, whether those are physical, mental, or spiritual, those come much more easily when they can see the big picture. That's, that's the most striking thing that I see. And let's come back to that spiritual implication question. You talked about it personally. How about your readers? How about your listeners when you're on the lecture circuit? Are people saying understanding these issues are causing them to become more spiritually aware? Yes. When I have a speaking engagement and speak to a, a diverse audience, there are always people for whom the penny drops. And it's like, wow, this is a very big deal with impacts at multiple levels, there's a lot going on. And as a speaker, as a writer, I have to say it's rewarding to see that penny drop. Mm. Scott, you're getting out an important message, and it's a message that calls us to take action, to be more educated, not to be idle. As we're winding up today's edition of American Indian Living, there might be some people still on the fence. They might have found the the show interesting, but they don't know where to go from here. Any recommendations? Well, there's my book. But if some want to take a look at my blog, planetindistress.com, I've got a great number of interesting articles there. Okay, planetindistress.com. That's Scott's blog. His book carries the same title, Planet in Distress. It's available at Amazon and many other fine booksellers. We've been talking about a subject it's not a strange one in Indian country. It calls us to engage with the environment in which we're in. It calls us to uh, make as little an impact as we can and yet to do more than that. It calls us, too, to become more spiritually aware. If you resonate with these themes, just remember Planet in Distress, whether it's planetindistress.com or Scott's book, and you can engage more in this dialogue. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.